the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us on the start of a whole new week. Uh, James and I were talking just before the program began. We're in our what week is it, James, of our uh, exile? Well, we're in the seventh month of our exile. The seventh month of our exile. I'll break. I'll break it down to. Uh, I'll break it down to weeks for tomorrow's show for you. Okay, <laughs> sounds like a plan. Well, today we're going to uh, share a conversation I had actually last week with Benjamin Watson. Now, if that name sounds familiar to you, he is a former American football tight end. He played for the Patriots. This is, by the way, a Patriot household, according to Dan Rice. He's a Super Bowl winner, but most importantly, he's a man of faith. He's a husband. He's a father. And he most recently produced a um, documentary, Divided Hearts of America. It presents a very deeply personal response to the legacy of abortion in the U.S. It relies heavily on about 30 interviews on the entire uh, spectrum of views on the subject of abortion, of abortion, and it's going to be uh, streaming currently on SalemNow.com. We'll talk with him more about that later this hour. We're going to repeat that conversation in the 5 o'clock hour as well, so I'm looking forward to giving you an opportunity to hear from this remarkable young man. So stick around for that. Well, President Trump said that he's going to be discharged from Walter Reed National Military Medical Center this evening. He's going to return to the White House. I will be leaving the great Walter Reed Medical Center today at 630. The president tweeted, feeling really good. Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. We have developed under the Trump administration some really great drugs and knowledge. I feel better than I did 20 years ago, end quote. Well, his comments come just before White House physician Dr. Stan Conley, or rather Sean Conley, is uh, briefed the. Uh, the press on the president's health at 3 p.m. It was so interesting to hear how it was uh, politicized by those asking the questions. But the doctor, he uh, stuck with protocols and what he says is the uh, limitation placed on him and others uh, in terms of some of the details. Um, the doctor did say that he spoke to the president this morning. He continued to improve overnight, is ready to get back to a normal working schedule. Uh, he added that the president will meet with his uh, doctors and nurses this morning to make further assessments in his progress. Uh, Meadows said that we are still optimistic that he will be able to return to the White House later today with his medical professionals making that determination. The president was admitted to Walter Reed on Friday evening after he experienced what the White House at the uh, time described as mild symptoms. There's been some back and forth over what that actually means and what those symptoms were. But the president, upon being admitted to Walter Reed, had a fever. And according to senior White House officials, there was real concern about his vitals. The president also has faced um, health care scares rather throughout his battle with COVID-19, including two instances in which his blood oxygen level dropped suddenly. Doctors treated the president with a dose of the steroid uh, dexamethasone in response. A normal blood oxygen reading is um, between 95 and 100. 
Conley said that uh, Trump had a high fever, blood oxygen level of 94 percent on Friday and during another episode on Saturday. But on Saturday, Conley said the doctor's cardiac, kidney and liver functions were normal, that the president was not on oxygen, was not having any difficulty breathing or walking. Conley said over the weekend that the president had received an antibody cocktail as well as zinc, vitamin D, uh, fomotidine, a melatonin and a daily aspirin. You might want to make note of that. He said also the president was taking a five-day course of remdesivir. Meanwhile, First Lady Melania Trump, who also tested positive for COVID-19, tweeted on Monday saying that she is feeling well. Uh, My family is grateful for all of the prayers and support, she tweeted. I am feeling good and will continue to rest at home. Thank you to the medical staff and caretakers everywhere and my continued prayers for those who are ill or have family members impacted by the virus, the First Lady added. Also on Monday, White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany announced that uh, she had tested positive for COVID-19 after resting, uh, rather testing negative consistently, including every day since Thursday. I've tested positive for COVID-19 on Monday morning while experiencing minor symptoms. McEnany said in a statement, no reporters, producers, or members of the press are listed as close contacts by the White House Medical Unit. Other, um, this is a result of contact tracing. Other White House staff who were tested positive for COVID-19 at this point include Senior Advisor Hope Hicks, Director of Oval Office Operations Nick Luna, Trump Campaign Manager uh, Bill Stepien, uh, also tested positive for COVID-19. Former Counselor to the President Kellyanne Conway has also tested positive and former New Jersey uh, Governor Chris Christie, who participated in debate prep with the president recently, did too. He was admitted to the hospital over the weekend. McEnany said Sunday that the White House would not be releasing the names or exact number of staffers who have become infected with the novel coronavirus, citing privacy concerns. There are privacy interests we take seriously, safeguarding the information of personnel here at the White House. The president and first lady announced they uh, tested positive for COVID-19 early on Friday, just before 1 a.m. after it was revealed that Hicks tested positive on Thursday. Well, the president uh, tweeted on Sunday a video of himself at Walter Reed Medical Center telling his followers he's uh, learned a lot about the novel coronavirus and teased his supporters gathered outside the hospital about a little surprise. Well, that surprise, of course, was a five-minute drive-through. We're going to pay a little surprise to some of our great patriots, uh, he said. They've been out there for a long time, and they've got Trump flags, and they love our country, so I'm not telling anybody but you, but I'm about to make a little surprise visit. Well, shortly after sending out his tweet, the president made his surprise appearance. When he briefly left the hospital, drove by, waved, and gave a thumbs-up to the groups of supporters gathered outside in Maryland before returning to Walter Reed shortly. Shortly after, well, the political uh, brouhaha that followed uh, was predictable. The president was separated from the Secret Service uh, individuals by a partition. They wore um, the uh, kind of protective uh, gear that hospitals use. The doctors approved the visit. So it is what it is. Was it a wise thing to do? I don't know. This is a political year. The White House said the appropriate precautions were taken for Trump's trip and that the drive was cleared by the medical staff at Walter Reed. I really appreciate all of the fans and supporters outside the hospital. The president tweeted on Sunday. The fact is they really love our country and are seeing how uh, we are making it great, greater than ever before.
Well, again, this is a political year, and therefore virtually everything is politicized. Um, and this, of course, is a presidential election year as well. Well, the president could return to the White House as early as uh, tonight if conditions continue to improve, his doctors say. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows confirmed the president's condition deteriorated on Friday. He's much better now. And the Trump campaign senior advisor Steve Cortez says the president is upbeat and assertive after the coronavirus uh, diagnosis. Representative uh, McCarthy ripped Nancy Pelosi for her unbecoming reaction to the president's uh, diagnosis, calling it rather disgusting. And the president received around the world national security briefings by phone due to the COVID diagnosis. Meanwhile, Biden is up 14 points over Trump following the chaotic debate of last week. A new poll reveals it's an NBC News Wall Street Journal poll showing Democratic nominee Joe Biden with a 14 point lead nationally over President Trump following the first presidential debate. The survey was taken between the 30th of September and the 1st of October. And it covered just 800 registered voters. It had a margin of error of about 3.5 percent. The results showed 53 percent of respondents said they'd vote for the former vice president compared to 39 percent for Trump. The president was has maintained, however, polling and pundit analysis of his White House chances um, contain overt bias and was part of the reason why he defeated Hillary Clinton, despite most experts predictions to the contrary. Well, he does have a point about last time around. Well, the poll was also taken before the announcement about Trump's testing positive for COVID-19. Meanwhile, Vice, former Vice President Biden uh, plans to attend the next debate and uh, hopes that President Trump will be able to participate as well, according to his campaign. And Trump and Biden supporters are out in force across the swing states of Florida with the election less than one month away, 28 days to be precise. The president's COVID diagnosis thrust the coronavirus pandemic back to the forefront in the White House race. Well, pro-Armenia protesters shut down Hollywood traffic, demanding support in the conflict with Azerbaijan. Hundreds of protesters took to the streets and blocked traffic in Los Angeles on Saturday. They waved Armenian flags. They held up signs demanding the media pay attention to the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Freeway traffic slowed in both directions. Around 9.30 p.m. by 10.15 p.m., demonstrators had forced the highway to a close. Traffic began to move again at about 11 p.m. Well, the Armenian Youth Federation had organized an earlier protest that day, having already organized one outside the Azerbaijan consulate that drew over 1,000 people. A clash on the 27th of September resulted in Armenia instituting martial law and Azerbaijan declaring a state of war. Each nation deployed troops to the heavily contested Nag-Orno-Karabakh region with intense fighting along the entire front line, according to the Armenian Defense Ministry spokesperson. In other developments, Armenia-Azerbaijan fighting killed dozens in, as the tensions there are mounting in this decades-old conflict. And Syrian rebels reportedly have been sent to fight the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, in our next segment, we're going to hear from former American football tight end Benjamin Watson. He is the uh, uh, producer and director, executive director of Divided Hearts of America. It's a documentary that presents a deeply personal response to the legacy of abortion in the U.S. The film is currently available for streaming online at Salem Now. By the way, that's a great platform if you're looking for good entertainment or uh, informative uh, broadcasting, SalemNow.com. 
a new uh, format for Salem Media Group. Well, the Portland man has been arrested after shattering a patrol car window and pepper spraying the interior, injuring an officer. And a Portland restaurant owner was stabbed by a homeless patron who refused to pay his bill. California's city flag was stolen and replaced by a Trump campaign banner. I understand the hospitals are overrun with people who just couldn't take it. LeBron James uh, walked off the court in frustration before the end of Game 3, saying this is not a good look. I suppose neither is walking off before the game has ended. Well, millions of Americans in non-essential jobs are feeling the pain of coronavirus layoffs. And boosted by positive reports from Trump's doctors, oil fears have dissipated and the commodity rose 2% on Monday. Florida Disney's properties are preparing to lose at least one quarter of their staff through layoffs. And Coca-Cola announced plans to discontinue Zico or Zyco, or I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It sounds too close to Zika as far as I'm concerned. They're coconut water, and they're considering other less popular brands as well. Yeah, I never tried that one. Well, Trump addressed the uh, nation from the hospital, not surprisingly, telling citizens on Saturday that he feels much better and he thinks he'll be back soon. We understand now that might be as early as this evening in terms of returning to the White House. On Sunday, he took a brief trip by motorcade to show appreciation to the many who came to the hospital to show their support. Many in the media were aghast at such a move, but the White House assured all that they took precautions. From the Twitter of White House Judiciary, GOP, CNN, not worried about hashtag COVID-19 during mass protests and riots. Very worried about um, hashtag COVID-19 when the president rides in a car. Jan Gabriel says Trump doesn't wear a mask, put on a mask. Trump wears a mask, LOL, a mask. Trump gets COVID, uh, faking it. Trump, COVID is mild. He's dying. Trump has strong therapies, too strong. Trump in hospital, LOL. He called uh, a lid. Trump waves to supporters. He's killed everyone. That pretty much sums up how the coverage goes. The president could leave the hospital as soon as today as the vice president, Pence, hits uh, the campaign trail. And, of course, the vice presidential debate is scheduled for tomorrow night. Well, 60 Minutes in Australia has interviewed a Biden rape accuser. A clip from the interview with Tara Reid, 60 Minutes Australia, a longer segment where she tells her disturbing story in detail. It's unedited and rather graphic. Ted Cruz says this is the most complete indictment of media bias ever. Why does CBS think voters in Australia need to know about these serious charges against Biden, but not voters in America, where he's actually on the ballot? Only explanation is that at CBS News, they're covering up for the Dems. Well, presidential polls are all over the map. I mentioned one earlier, one poll that landed on the same day uh, had Biden up 14 to 7, a real clear politics. The 14 uh, uh, up 14 poll was heavy on Democrats. A reminder, on October 10th, 2016, a CBS News poll had Hillary up by 14. Some believe the COVID scare has, uh, will actually help Trump, but we'll not know the answer to that question that dilemma until votes are actually cast and counted. Amy Coney Barrett had COVID-19 earlier this year. Uh, we learned her husband also had it. Democrats sought to use Trump's COVID-19 diagnosis as an excuse to top the nomination. The Wall Street Journal notes the Democrats claimed there is bipartisan agreement that a virtual confirmation hearing for a lifetime appointment to the federal bench is not an acceptable substitute. You have to smile at the federal bench. Um, 
You have to smile at their grim resourcefulness, but Senate Republicans can safely dismiss this complaint. The U.S. government must continue to function, and that includes judicial confirmations. Senate committees, including judiciary, have done business remotely during the pandemic on a regular basis. From Hoover Institute media fellow Paul Sperry, late last night, he says Dems demand to delay Amy, Com- uh, Amy Barrett confirmation hearings, a Senate insider asserted. We are not changing a thing. We start the 12th and go for three to four days. And as soon as we vote in committee, McConnell will file cloture to cut off debate to proceed to the floor vote. So apparently it's moving forward. Even prior to the COVID scare, Hugh Hewitt looked at what uh, might be the next uh, move to seek to torpedo her nomination. You can find more at uh, the Washington Post, Hugh Hewitt writing. And Apple is going to force a gender neutral Santa Claus onto your phone. Digital diversity continues to look like something the Babylon Bee could very easily have dreamed up. Michigan Supreme Court has struck down uh, the governor's orders to shut down. The Democratic governor has enjoyed her um, harsh lockdown. She declared a second emergency once the first expired. But the Michigan Supreme Court says, no, she's exceeded her authority. The president of France is seeking to ban homeschooling, calling it indoctrination and demanding all fellow uh, countries, uh, all follow rather the country's curriculum. The story explains it uh, comes as a crackdown on extremists in Muslim communities, but notes the measure applies to any group. Congressman Kevin McCarthy and Michael McCall a right that there is perhaps no more urgent strategic undertaking than breaking the Chinese supply chain monopoly. The coronavirus pandemic exposed our dependence on the PRC for medicine, personal protective equipment and technology. That must end. Our plan, to, uh, plan increases U.S. manufacturing and builds supply chain resiliency through full expansion on a permanent basis. It's time to get serious about China, they say. They call U.S. investment and restores um, uh, the restoration, rather, of domestic production, tax credits, and so on. Nikki Haley, uh, in a great op-ed with Michael McCall, says that the uh, Chinese Communist uh, government has launched a coordinated campaign across government and society, exploiting our institutions to eradicate them. It seeks to replace the American dream with the Chinese dream. We need to be aware. Meanwhile, Hurricane Delta, yet another tropical storm, is strengthening and could make landfall in the Gulf Coast this week. With 81 homicides, Chicago recorded its deadliest September in 25 years. And President Trump posted videos uh, updating uh, his status. Uh, He also saluted fans outside Walter Reed. Stats suggest that the lockdown may have had little effect on the spread of COVID-19. You can read more on that in the National Review. Well, the Biden campaign is reportedly pulling negative ads against the president after his COVID diagnosis. Well, eventually they ran at full force on Sunday. I hope they die. Left-wingers react to positive coronavirus diagnosis for Trump and others. Amy Comey Barrett's confirmation will move forward, Mitch McConnell assures NPR. And the new Supreme Court term begins on Monday with major cases from Obamacare to religious liberty on the docket. Michigan's governor vows to continue the coronavirus measures despite the state Supreme Court declaring them unconstitutional. And the highly anticipated grand jury recording of Breonna Taylor's case has been released, saying our presentation followed the facts and the evidence. New home, Texas, I guess that's a town, becomes the 15th city in the nation to outlaw abortion. And NBA viewership keeps well, sinking. Game two of the NBA finals, the last uh, the least watched game on record. 
On this day in history, 1988, Democrat Lloyd Benston, he lambastes Republican Dan Quayle during their vice presidential debate, saying, Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. It was a big line at the time. And uh, by the way, tomorrow is the first and only vice presidential debate between Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President Pence. On this day in history, 1947, President Harry S. Truman delivers the, his first televised White House address as he speaks on the world food crisis. It wasn't just his, it was the first televised White House address. 1953, Earl Warren is sworn in as the 14th Chief Justice of the United States, succeeding Fred Vinson. 1958, racially desegregated Clinton High School in Clinton, Tennessee, is mostly leveled by an early morning bombing. On this day in history, 1983, Solidarity Finder Lech Walesa, he's named a winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. 1984, the Space Shuttle Challenger blasts off from Kentucky Space Center on an eight-day mission. The crew includes Catherine Sullivan, who becomes the first American woman to walk in space, and Mark Garnow, the first Canadian astronaut. 1989, this day in history, the jury in Charlotte, North Carolina, convicts former PTL evangelist Dim Baker of using his television show to defraud followers. 2005, defying the White House senators vote 90 to 9 to approve an amendment sponsored by Senator John McCain that would prohibit the use of cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment or punishment against anyone in U.S. government custody. A reluctant President George W. Bush would later sign on to that amendment. 2011, Apple founder Steve Jobs, 56, dies in Palo Alto, California. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, the government reports that the unemployment rate fell in September to 3.7 percent, the lowest since 1969, reflecting a healthy economy driven by strong consumer and business spending. Oh, what a difference a pandemic can make. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from former American football tight end Benjamin Watson. He has a new documentary, Divided Hearts of America. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I have to tell you, I'm pretty thrilled to talk with former NFL star Benjamin Watson. And you might think, you know, we're going to talk about football. But no, he's about other things these days. The former NFL star wants to challenge and educate Americans. America on the subject of abortion with his new documentary. Well, the Super Bowl champion is the co-executive producer with his wife, Kirsten, of Divided Hearts of America. It's a pro-life movie on Salem Now streaming. Now, he says it's about human dignity. It's about the sanctity of life and about empathy, that even though we may disagree on the subject, we need to see humanity in one another. He's the father of seven, the co-chair of the One More Foundation. He... Um, uh, interviewed more than 30 leaders on both sides of this issue. That had to be a, a challenge um, to look at how America became so divided on abortion and to dive into where the nation is headed if the course doesn't change. Uh, my guest, Ben Watson, is a uh, husband and a father. He owns a Super Bowl ring, but he's uh, more importantly a man of faith. He is a pro-life advocate. He's a husband and a father. And we're just delighted to have you with us to talk about your new film, Divided Hearts of America. Welcome. Hello, Georgine. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, of all the things you might choose to do, why a film about abortion in America that not that doesn't just convey your view on the subject, but you wanted to go deeper and you talk to people on the entire spectrum of the subject of abortion? What motivated you to take this on? 
Well, it's kind of a strange topic for a first um, foray into film, I would say. But uh, <laughs> we are, you know, in a time when when um, this is a very important topic, and it's always an important topic whenever it's life and death, which um, I believe abortion is. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that that strikes right at the heart of America when it comes to issues of justice, issue, issues of life and liberty, uh, and, and we are very, very divided on it. And so, uh, my wife Kirsten and I have been involved with uh, supporting pregnancy centers in different ways. Uh, but what we've realized uh, most recently, especially in 2019 with the Reproductive Health Act, there was this ra- ramping up on both sides of the aisle when it came to what was going to happen with this issue. And there's so much uh, venom, vitriol, hatred on both sides, yeah. and a lot of passion, rightly so, again. But the, the hope with, with this documentary was to provide um, true information, not propaganda, about where we are, um, how we got here historically, what laws led up to us being here, how did the rhetoric become what it is, and what exactly happened in an abortion, and also how do we, um, whether you're a pro-life or pro-choice, have these conversations that will bridge the divide and, as you said before, bring about some sort of of um, humanity, empathy, understanding, uh, it, even if not agreeance, which we understand that's not going to happen, but there needs to be a way we can talk about this and have and be deeply convicted, but also be compassionate, even in our conviction. This is such a highly divisive season that we find ourselves in. I really want to commend you for taking up one of the most controversial issues Mm -hmm. of our day and to attempt to do it in a way that doesn't just say that I'm a pro-life man and this is what my convictions are. But you sought to engage in genuine conversation to help us understand one another. For those of us who are pro-life and I am pro-life, I've been involved in the pro-life movement here in my community for many years. And those who are on the other side of the issue, we so often vilify one another to the point that we've lost any possibility of persuasion because we don't talk to yeah. each other and we we have made villains of of each other. So how did you go about these 30 interviews that span the whole uh, divide on the subject of abortion? Yeah. <clears throat> well, the goal was definitely to, to hear voices from different areas of American life. So we spoke to people that had worked in abortion clinics. We spoke with people who have actually performed abortions. we spoke to post-abortive women and men, uh, spoke to people in academia, uh, people that are in uh, medicine, uh, people that um, are in politics, spent spent some time on Capitol Hill speaking with uh, different senators, congressmen and women uh, on both sides of the aisle, uh, went to New York, Chicago, uh, New Orleans, uh, D.C., as I mentioned before, to just get the heartbeat uh, of America. And and quite honestly, it was, um, you know, we have a lot more, I would say, pro-life voices, uh, but we do have some very, very strong pro-choice voices, even speaking with uh, a, a, a senator, a New York State senator, who actually co-sponsored the Reproductive Health Act. Uh, she was willing mm-hmm. to speak with us. And, and, and in doing this, you know, we're able to hear the why. I think a lot of times, uh, especially with this issue, um, if you look at cable news or uh, you, you hear the rhetoric around it, we don't really get to, to the why people do or think what they think. We just get to, okay, you're in that corner, I'm in that corner. And so part of bridging the gap is understanding the why. And then you can understand how you, as a pro-life community, can address those several different whys that people have uh, and the reasons why, why they have uh, decided to terminate the pregnancy. Well, again, this is such a strategic time when people find themselves with more time on their hands than they've had in a very long time to give them an opportunity to sit down and watch a a documentary that covers this issue in a compassionate way and compels us 
to look on it moving forward as something other than a reason to shake my fist in someone else's face. But how can I be constructive? How can I recognize the humanity, even in my opponent, and move forward? Um, who are some of the folks, and it's an impressive lineup, who are some of the mm-hmm. folks that you feature in Divided Hearts of America? Well, some of the folks we talk to are, are pretty well-known pro-life voices, people like uh, Alveda King and uh, Dr. Ben Carson, you know, especially talking to somebody like him who, uh, from a medical standpoint, mm-hmm. um, is one of the brightest doctors ever to uh, come from this country, you know, being that he's operated on, on um, babies in utero and kind of hearing his journey and how his opinions have changed from uh, how he used to think about abortion to where he thinks about now. We spoke with uh, Senator Tim Scott, another one um, on Capitol Hill. We spoke to people like Carter Sneed, who is a uh, uh, in the ethics department at Notre Dame, uh, and even spoke to, as I mentioned before, um, men who have been affected, but also women who have had multiple abortions, um, but but through that have you know healed and are actually very active uh, in in pro life advocacy. Uh, you know, I think a large part of this is understanding that four out of ten women in our church pews are post abortion. And so mm-hmm. when you think about that and you think about the fact that most people you know know someone or have themselves been involved with an abortion, uh, how we speak about these people, um, it, we have to do so in a way that is uh, loving um, and forgiving and not condemning because they, many of them already feel condemned even yes. inside of the places where they should be being restored. Yes, so true. We're talking about Divided Hearts of America, which is currently streaming on SalemNow.com. And let me encourage you, this is a great opportunity to think constructively about this subject and how moving forward as we have more freedom of navigation around the country, how we can respond and treat one another in the midst of this controversy. What is the goal of this film? Obviously, you want to inform your viewers, uh, but what do you hope that we, we gain from sitting down and really thinking about abortion and how it's impacted our country and individuals in our communities? Yeah, the, well, I, I want people to, we want people to leave uh, from watching or get up from, from streaming this documentary, uh, thinking about this topic in some different way than before, but also being motivated uh, to, to engage and to and have a more of a sense of urgency. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes we are lackadaisical. Sometimes, in a in a battle like this that has drug on for so many years, something that seems like it may be hopeless, that there's there's no end in sight, uh, we get lackadaisical. We throw our hands up and feel like we can't make a difference. But um, I have good friends, uh, one of which I interview in the film, an author named Randy Alcorn, uh, who talks yes. about the fact that we can all do something and. Everything that we do is important. Never feel like you are one person, you are one church, you are one community, and you have no ability to affect change. That's simply not true. Yeah. And so th- that's one thing I want people to walk away. I want people to be motivated. I also want people to realize um, the, the, the horrors that abortion is. Um, we talk about it in ways sometimes as uh, women's rights, which we all want women to have rights for sure. We want them to be respected and protected, no doubt. Um, it's also always termed in, in, in um, uh, terminology such as, you know, lump of cells, fetus, that sort of things uh, um, to kind of take away or distract from what actually goes on in some of these procedures. And so throughout the film, we talk about exactly what is this? What are the different methods um, of terminating that happen? 
Uh, we speak with people who have actually performed these procedures. And so, you know, I want people to be informed, as, as we mentioned before, but most importantly, um, there has to be uh, a mode of, of not necessarily agreeing, but I want people who are on the fence uh, to make a decision for life. We want lives to be saved. And not just lives in the womb. We're talking about lives outside of the womb. We're talking right. about women and men who are facing these decisions. We want their lives to matter because we know that we all walk around stamped with the image of our creator. That's right. Uh, I appreciate that the documentary gives us the history of the laws uh, that we have seen, both the state and then ultimately the Supreme Court decisions that uh, brought us to this current pass. It's extremely well done. It's tastefully done. There may be segments when the littler ones need to, you know, go do something else. But this is a much needed <laughs> look at abortion in America that has divided the country. Again, it, the documentary is titled Divided Hearts of America. It's streaming live on SalemNow.com. Let me encourage you to make some appointment watching. You decide Saturday night, this is what we're doing or Monday evening or mm. whatever. Uh, make a point to see this film. It's important to you. It's important to the young people in your household. And I believe it's important for the nation. Uh, ben Watson, thank you so much for the work that you have done. You've invested a great deal into this project. And I think it certainly is, uh, has paid off. And I hope many of our listeners, and if not all of them, will watch Divided Hearts of America streaming live now at SalemNow.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. I so appreciate the time. And thank you for allowing me to come on and talk about the film. You're absolutely welcome. Uh, ben, again, uh, Ben Watson, who has invested a tremendous amount into this film. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I don't think I mentioned at the top of the hour that James Blend is producing. I think I should mention it now. Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice, he's given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Thanks, Dan Rice. Well, we're hearing a lot about the president's treatment. He seems to be doing very well. He's going to return to the White House. Um, and while there is a White House medical facility on on site, uh, it still says a lot that he's going to be leaving Walter Reed. Well, one of the president's physicians says the president was treated with a steroid after a drop in his oxygen levels on Saturday. That's Dr. Sean Connolly uh, at the news conference on Sunday that he was given the steroid uh, dexamethasone uh, while he was hospitalized. Well, he said the president's oxygen level had dropped down to 93%. He says the president didn't feel short of breath, but uh, was having some difficulty. His blood oxygen level currently stands at 98%. And I, he, in the press conference earlier today, it might even be better than that. Well, blood oxygen saturation is a key health marker for coronavirus patients. A normal reading is between 95 to 100. A drop below 90 is concerning. Well, one doctor, a specialist in pulmonary Critical care said the president received a second dose of the experimental drug, uh, remdesivir, along with the first dose of dexamethasone on Saturday and uh, isn't showing any side effects that uh, they could tell. Well, in response to transient low oxygen levels, we did initiate the uh, use of the therapy and he received his first dose of that yesterday. Uh, he said during a press conference, well, dexamethasone and similar steroids uh, now are known to improve survival when used in hospitalized patients who need extra oxygen, but might be harmful for less sick patients. The World Health Organization says that dexamethasone is not recommended for non-severe cases. The National Institutes of Health guidelines only recommend it for patients with COVID-19 who are on a ventilator 
or are receiving supplemental oxygen. Now, National Institutes of Health say COVID-19 treatment guidelines recommend against using dexamethasone in patients who do not require oxygen, oxygen rather, and it has only been proven to help in more serious cases as well. Among the concerns with the earlier use of the steroid, uh, that it tamps down certain immune cells, hindering the body's uh, own ability to fight the infection. Well, the president is 74 years old, clinically obese, putting him at higher risk of serious complications. His treatment with steroid, uh, with that steroid is in addition to the single dose he was given Friday of an experimental drug from, let's see, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals uh, that supplies antibodies to help the immune system fight the virus. On Friday, the president also began a five-day course of remdesivir, a Gilead science drug currently used for moderately and severe um, patients. The drug works in different ways. The antibodies help the immune system rid the body of the virus and uh, remdesivir curbs the virus's ability to multiply. More than 209,000 Americans have been killed by the virus thus far, by far the highest number of confirmed fatalities in the world. In all, nearly 7.4 million people have been infected in the United States. Few have access to the kind of around-the-clock attention and experimental treatments that the president has received. Uh, But that gives you just some, I suppose, information about uh, this particular steroid that the president was given. And again, he is expected to return to the White House later today, if not uh, already. Well, North Carolina Republican Senator Tom Tillis, who is running for re-election, has become the fourth member of the Senate to test positive for COVID-19. Uh, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson tested positive for COVID-19, we learned uh, earlier this weekend. Uh, also, uh, White House Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany, Kellyanne Conway tested positive for COVID-19. Chris Christie tested positive for COVID-19. We also learned that Cam Newton, who, of course, is not a politician. He's the New England Patriots quarterback. He reportedly tested positive for the coronavirus, and he will not play for the Kansas City Chiefs on Sunday. Um, these That's a short list of uh, names that are familiar to us, people who have contracted the virus thus far. Well, President Trump's hospitalization with the coronavirus has catapulted this week's vice presidential debate into the spotlight to an extraordinary degree, putting pressure on Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris to use the platform to assure an anxious public they're prepared and qualified to step in as president. Now, rather interestingly, the majority of voters, uh, and that's Democrats as well as Republicans and independents, believe Vice President, rather former Vice President, um, will not be able to uh, complete his first term and that uh, this will be the most consequential vice presidential pick of a lifetime in Kamala Harris. So it's consequential in that uh, the current president has COVID-19 and the majority of voters think Joseph Biden, who is 77, um, will not be able to complete his first term. Now, this is all speculative, but nonetheless, it's in that um, soup of ideas and speculation that the vice presidential debate takes place tomorrow night. Uh, This is their opportunity to use the forum to distinguish themselves not only as running mates, but potential presidential uh, material. Mr. Trump's diagnosis with a potentially lethal virus, the fact that he is 74 and his Democratic rival Joseph Biden, who is 77, was a stark reminder that either Mr. Pence or Ms. Harris could end up being president themselves as opposed to just leading contenders for the nomination in 2024 and beyond. Now, for Mr. Pence, Wednesday's debate will most likely compel him to account for the administration's record on on the virus that's now infected 7.4 million Americans. He has led that effort, so he's certainly in a position to do so. 
And for Ms. Harris, a former prosecutor, the debate is a chance to show that she's capable of being presidential in a national emergency, as well as to demonstrate that she can challenge the Trump record on COVID-19 without seeming overly aggressive against an ailing president. Well, depending on how quickly Mr. Trump recovers, and it seems he will be recovered fairly quickly, his condition could also force the cancellation of the two remaining debates between Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden. Should that happen, the 90-minute session on Wednesday Uh, would be the final debate of this presidential election season and the last chance for both parties to command a huge audience. That could be particularly significant for uh, President Trump, whose uh, debate performance last week turned voters uh, in some key states against him, if uh, the polling that we're seeing is to be uh, believed. Raphael uh, Sonenshine, the executive director of the Pat Brown Institute for Public Affairs at California State University, Los Angeles, said that a debate that a debate between two running mates in any other year would be a little or more um, than a political afterthought. But the vice presidential debate on Wednesday, and I think I misspoke earlier saying Tuesday in Salt Lake City would be marked differently, uh, he says, given the age and vulnerability of the candidates running for president. Now, I'm not sure that most people think about these two candidates as just one step uh, away from the grave, but nonetheless, um, their age does weigh, at least in the decision-making uh, process for some who are voting. I mean, we only have 70-plus-year-olds to choose from. Uh, we'll see how this vice presidential debate uh, will influence uh, the outcome of the election and how each of the two uh, VP uh, candidates will do. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got to stop for news and traffic at the top of the hour, but we'll be back, be right back uh, to continue to wind our way through the news. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. In the latter part of this hour, we're going to share my conversation with Benjamin Watson, Divided Hearts of America. It's a documentary currently streaming live at SalemNow.com. All the important details coming up with Benjamin Watson. And by the way, he's the former American football tight end. He played for the Patriots. He has a Super Bowl ring. It's pretty exciting to talk to him. Well, police made six arrests after protesters marched Sunday night from Tom McCall Waterfront Park to the new Multnomah County Courthouse and then to the Central Precinct in downtown Portland. Police said some protesters vandalized some buildings and officers made targeted arrests. The group left the area at about 1230 a.m. Police released uh, arrest information about a 29-year-old, a 33-year-old, <clears throat> excuse me, 30, 22, 28, and 21-year-olds who were charged with second-degree disorderly conduct, assaulting a public safety officer, first criminal mischief, interfering with a peace officer, escape in the third degree, first-degree criminal mischief, second-degree disorderly conduct, and so on. Protests have been uh, happening consistently in Portland since the killing of George Floyd on Memorial Day. Demonstrators have taken to Portland streets for issues that include police brutality, racial inequality, the murder of people of color by police, the abolition Um, of police and prisons and the defunding of police, among other things. On Saturday night, a vigil was held at Portland for ICE detainees. It became rather began near the Burnside Bridge and walked down the waterfront to Salmon Street Springs. So depending on what group at what time, it could be any number of issues. Meanwhile, in Bend, an afternoon of vocal but peaceful rallies by supporters of President Donald Trump and social justice activists turned violent on Saturday at Pilot Butte Neighborhood Park in Bend when a Black Lives Matter protest to try to steal a Trump campaign flag. Well, people are going back and forth these days and tensions are 
mounting. More than 100 people had gathered at the park and violence erupted as Trump supporters formed a caravan to leave. Trump supporters jumped out of their vehicles to chase a man who tried to steal the flag. Uh, Punches were thrown and then a Central Oregon peacekeeper uh, protest started spraying the crowd with pepper spray. At one point, a Trump supporter was sprayed with pepper spray inside his truck by a social justice activist. Well, Ben police then confiscated two handguns um, that the Trump supporter had uh, with him. Police also later arrested Garrett Gerds, a 23-year-old of Ben, who they identified as the man who tried to steal the flag. A 33-year-old woman of Lapine who went to support Black Lives Matter had never seen anything like it in Bend where she grew up. She, too, was hit with pepper spray. The next thing I knew, I heard tasers going off and then pepper spray. The Trump supporters had been saying for more than a week they planned to a Bend rally and possible caravan through the city. When rumors surfaced that the Proud Boys, a far-right extremist group, might attend, social justice activists planned um, their own counter-rally. Apparently, the Proud Boys didn't show up. Both groups uh, converged at the park near Pilot Butte about midday, and for hours, their presence was largely peaceful, marked only by hurled insults and chants. We are just having a party, said one Bend resident and social justice activist. Well, no members of hate groups were visible at the rally, which was a concern of the Central Oregon Diversity Project and Central Oregon Peacekeepers. Throughout the afternoon, police officers periodically drove through the parking lot to monitor the events, but no need was um, was found for them to intervene. In any event, the back and forth continues, not just in Portland, but elsewhere as well. Well, this November, Portland will see a mayoral election like none before. Mayor Ted Wheeler is running against challenger Sarah uh, Ianarone in a race defined by months-long protests and the coronavirus pandemic. Well, Wheeler had a healthy lead over his opponent in the May primary, but fell just short of a threshold he needed to avoid a runoff. But days after that primary, the death of George Floyd and ongoing protests in Portland have upended that race. Well, on October the 8th, which is Thursday, both candidates will make their cases to voters in a debate hosted by KGW and The Oregonian. The candidates will face questions both from KGW anchor Laurel Porter and Oregonian reporter Everton Bailey, as well as questions Portland residents send via video. This is where we need your help. We uh, want to send us, uh, they want to encourage uh, residents to send a short video asking their questions. They're going to choose from among those uh, to play for the candidates during the debate. You're being asked to record your questions on your phone's camera. Keep it as uh, concise as possible, ideally 10 to 15 seconds. Make sure you're recording in a quiet place so they can clearly hear what you are uh, asking. Email that video to local media in the um, Email, please include your name, what neighborhood you live in, so that they can um, give you credit during the debate. Now, the Portland mayoral debate will air Thursday, October 8th, 7 o'clock p.m. You can watch the debate at KGW TV or the KGW app on YouTube or OregonLive.com. And you can send those videos to either KGW or Oregon Live if you'd like to pose your question to these mayoral candidates in this debate on Thursday. Well, officials in the rural Winston-Dillard district of Southern Oregon, they plan to open Douglas High School for in-person learning today. 
bucking state guidelines that were set back in June. Well, in a note to parents on Facebook, Winston Dillard Superintendent Kevin Miller lambasted state education officials, saying reopening decisions should rest with local elected officials rather than the Oregon Department of Education, saying state officials believe erroneously that if everyone stays home, everyone is safe. Sadly, this is a misperception probably related to the unfamiliarity with the poverty communities of Douglas County, he wrote. Also, sadly, ODHE, the Department of Education staff, probably couldn't even find Douglas County without a GPS. So I doubt that there was um, much improvement in their understanding of this area in the near future, end quote. Well, Oregon Department of Education spokesman Mark Siegel said the agency may impose corrective action on a district facing allegations of noncompliance with state coronavirus rules. Well, state officials have not clarified what those corrections might be, however. Well, the executive order that gives the state health and education officials authority to set and enforce reopening metrics signals officials accused of breaking those rules may be charged with a misdemeanor. It also allows officials to cut state funds for districts that flout the rules. But state officials in emails to the Oregonian, Oregon Live, have said that they're going to stop short of invoking either penalty, although uh, Deputy State Health Officer Tom Jean says his office at the Oregon Health Authority will intervene and even close a facility if there's a threat to public health. We prefer to work collaboratively with all stakeholders to ensure a solution can be found. Whether or not that solution includes allowing limited um, and uh, acceptably spaced uh, meeting in schools remains to be seen. Well, the situation sheds light on the lack of clarity about what state authorities will do when a school district opens for in-person instruction, despite exceeding state limits for coronavirus cases per capita. Well, in the uh, far-flung Adrian District near the Oregon-Idaho border, the superintendent and the school board opted to sue uh, state school chief Colt Gill in a bid to reopen. And on Thursday, dozens of parents and their children rallied against school closures in Clackamas County. Well, as of Friday, only eight counties met the metrics to allow young children for whom the Department of Education holds looser guidelines for reentry back into the classroom. Even then, educators sometimes don't feel comfortable returning to the classroom and unions have experienced, uh, exercised rather, their power to get many districts to delay reopening even when metrics would allow it. Teachers in Springfield protested their district decision to reopen for younger children in early September. And in the Winston-Dillard district, about 10 miles from Roseburg, about a dozen educators called in sick for a planned freshman orientation training schedule for Thursday, canceling it. Uh, The district does not have enough substitutes to take over all in-person courses at the high school, according to teacher union leader Kimberly Mincer. Well, in Oregon, a school district's ability to open classrooms for in-person instruction hinges on its county uh, maintaining a low coronavirus caseload. Well, the Department of Education will accept a district's application to readmit all students if its county logs in an average of 10 or fewer coronavirus cases per 100,000. The county and state has to also register a test positively rate of 5% or lower for the same time period, but state officials waived that requirement during September due to testing difficulties as wildfires raged across much of Oregon. So parents and educators and some administrators within the school district are growing increasingly frustrated by their inability to return to the classroom, arguing that the damage done Uh, can exceed the danger of COVID-19 for many of these students, particularly in uh, lower income areas. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in our next segment, I'll share a conversation I had actually last week with former American football tight end Benjamin Watson. He's uh, the executive producer of Divided Hearts of America. It's a documentary that presents a deeply personal response to the legacy of abortion in the U.S. He talked to people on both the sides of the issue and everything in between. The film's available for streaming on SalemNow.com. It's definitely worth watching. Uh, looking forward to uh, sharing that conversation with you with Benjamin Watson. He's a man of faith. He's a husband. He's a father. And he's a pro-lifer. Um, just a, an outstanding young man. Anyway, that's coming up in our next segment. Also want to remind you that this is October Clergy Appreciation Month. Pastor appreciation, however you want to uh, refer to it, this is our opportunity to say thank you and to encourage those who serve and labor among us as pastors and ministry leaders. Well, as you may know, for years, 93.9 KPDQ has hosted an annual pastor appreciation event for ministry leaders to come together, to share a meal, to hear a message of encouragement. We look forward to it every year. Well, sadly, this year, we're showing our appreciation in a different way. It's not going to be together, but I'm so grateful for technology that has given us the ability to present to pastors and ministry leaders a program we could not have presented um, had this pandemic not uh, forced a bit of creativity. So we're showing our appreciation by bringing pastors and ministry leaders a free virtual program. A new program will be released every Thursday this month featuring national speakers, speakers like Chuck Swindoll, Tony Evans, John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, and Greg Laurie, just to name a few every Thursday this month. And we'll have musicians such as Chris Tomlin for King and Country, Matthew West, Natalie Grant, and others. Well, these programs are free. We want to encourage and minister to you, pastor and ministry leader. You can go to kpdq.com to register. The events are sponsored by Cascade Furniture and... Um, uh, we want to thank them for their sponsorship. I also want to remind you that to help celebrate our Pastor Appreciation Month, we're also releasing a new program every Thursday and encouraging you to register for a uh, free Pastors and Ministry Leaders Upgrade. You have an opportunity to win $2,000 in technology upgrades and a $500 shopping spree from Cascade Furniture. We want you to know that you're appreciated. Your ministry is appreciated. Register for free today at kpdq.com for either event. And again, this Thursday, I think it's our second week of our pastor appreciation event. So check that out. Register for as many uh, Thursdays as you can. And we'll look forward to providing some encouraging uh, programming for you. Again, kpdq.com. Well, the causes of most of Oregon's catastrophic wildfires that ignited on Labor Day are still under investigation with official uh, determinations yet to come. But Anecdotal and eyewitness accounts suggest that several were started by electrical lines and equipment that were buffeted by the historic windstorm that whipped across the state for three days. Well, a good number of residents or affected uh, communities are asking why the lines weren't deactivated before the winds, which were clearly forecast days in advance by the National Weather Service, along with red flag warnings noting the extreme fire danger. Oregon's uh, Senator Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley, they wrote on Friday to the chief of the U.S. Forest Service and the Oregon State Forester asking for an analysis of what role power lines might have played in the start of or spread of wildfires 
in Santiam Canyon. Well, if in fact power lines were the culprit in igniting the fire statewide, one utility could face enormous exposure. Portland-based Pacific Power and its parent company, Pacific Core, uh, which is owned by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway conglomerate. Pacific Power was formed by a string of mergers that created a predominantly rural service territory. It spread throughout Oregon, but also in parts of Washington and Northern California. The utility operates local distribution systems and, in some cases, high-voltage lines that run through the center of the fires in the Santiam Canyon along uh, Oregon 22, the Archie Creek Fire in Umpqua National Forest, the Slater Fire that started in California and blew into Oregon, the Echo Mountain Complex near Lincoln City, the Almeda uh, Fire in the Rogue Valley, and the South um, uh, Obenchain Fire that started east of Eagle Point. Well, Pacificor declined to um, respond to the allegations thus far, but a spokesperson did say that the Labor Day uh, windstorm was far-reaching, uh, it impacted communities that they serve throughout Oregon and into Northern California. It's not exactly an admission of guilt, but do acknowledge that they are present where these Uh, Strong winds took place. Well, the fires destroyed several thousand homes and structures, claimed nine lives in Oregon, another two in California. And if electrical lines are the cause, the resulting liability could be enormous. On top of the lives, homes, structures, livestock and belongings lost, the initial state estimate pins about a billion dollars. The Oregon Department of Forestry and federal agencies um, have likely spent hundreds of millions on fire suppression efforts with far more to come in cleanup and restoration costs. So this this could be enormous. Northwest utilities are only too uh, aware of the $30 billion of uh, liabilities that sent California's largest electrical utility, Pacific Gas and Electric, into bankruptcy last year. Those claims stemmed from dozens of fires blamed on its equipment, including the destruction of the town of Paradise in 2018 that claimed 85 lives and 11,000 homes. But if Oregonians are eager for their state utility regulator to weigh in, they were disappointed on Thursday. The Oregon Public Utility Commission invited chief executives and top transmission executives from Pacific Power and the Portland General Election for a review of the wildfires, and each utility gave a 15-minute presentation. It was followed by questions from commissioners. None of the executives or the commission even flirted with the subject of how the wildfires started or whether Pacific Power in particular should have used preemptive blackouts in light of the forecast. This is a developing story. We'll certainly follow it to see whether or not liability is assessed against these uh, this power company. Recently, a friend sent me an article that uh, I found rather interesting. It wasn't surprising having traveled to China on many occasions and following what Xi Jinping's regime has done with regard to its response to the Christian faith within uh, the People's Republic of China. Um, Cameron um, Hilditch writes uh, what is the first excerpt of the uh, new translation of the Bible uh, that the People's Republic of China is putting together. And it says something about the nature of Xi Jinping's regime. Well, early in the year, we learned that the Chinese Communist Party's intention to undertake its own state-approved translation of the Bible. Evidently, the Christian scriptures aren't amenable to the uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party's orthodoxy as the Politburo would like. Well, according to the state-run Xinhua News Agency, the party assembled a group of obedient and pliable scholars Uh, late last year, and uh, charged them with making accurate and authoritative interpretations of classical doctrines to keep pace with the times. In other words, the 
Chinese Communist Party plans to turn the scriptures into another piece of regime propaganda by rewriting them beyond all recognition and in accordance with their philosophy. Now, we don't yet have access to the full Chairman Xi version of the Bible, but the first fruits of this sordid endeavor were made public last week when a government-run press published a textbook for high school students. The textbook, which is used to teach professional ethics and law, includes a passage from the eighth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. The passage recounts the famous story of the woman caught in adultery by Jesus' enemies and brought before him for judgment. The story is used by the authors of the textbook as a party-approved moral example of how obedience to the law at all costs is absolutely necessary. An important principle to instill in school children for a government that brooks no disobedience on its own laws. Well, those familiar with the passage in question will know how ill-suited it is for the purpose of instructing students in the art of unflinching submission to the letter of the law. But the Chinese Communist Party is evidently aware of this because it has made significant changes to the text, as one would expect. For those who haven't read the story before, the original, as it appears in the gospel, says this. Now, early in the morning, well, actually, I'm not going to have time to finish this, but early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all of the people came to him and sat down and caught them. Uh, He taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought him a woman who had been caught in adultery. As the story goes, the woman is pointed out. They're trying to challenge Jesus and, in fact, um, catch him in a contradiction. He does not condemn her, and he tells her to go and sin no more. In addition, he says, uh, whoever is without sin, you can cast the first stone. One by one, they peel off and go away. Now, we need to take a break when we come back. We'll hear from Benjamin Watson, um, and I'll try to share just at least a little bit of the end of this, but uh, we'll probably have to revisit it as the time. I'd forgotten about the uh, Watson interview. The time will not permit uh, me to go right into it. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I have to tell you, I'm pretty thrilled to talk with former NFL star Benjamin Watson, and you might think, you know, we're going to talk about football But no, he's about other things these days. The former NFL star wants to challenge and educate America on the subject of abortion with his new documentary. Well, the Super Bowl champion is the co-executive producer with his wife, Kirsten, of Divided Hearts of America. It's a pro-life movie on Salem Now streaming. Now, he says it's about human dignity. It's about the sanctity of life and about empathy, that even though we may disagree on the subject, we need to see humanity in one another. He's the father of seven, the co-chair of the One More Foundation. He um, uh, interviewed more than 30 leaders on both sides of this issue. That had to be a, a challenge um, to look at how America became so divided on abortion and to dive into where the nation is headed if the course doesn't change. Uh, my guest, Ben Watson, is a, a husband and a father. He owns a Super Bowl ring. But he's uh, more importantly a man of faith. He is a pro-life advocate. He's a husband and a father. And we're just delighted to have you with us to talk about your new film, Divided Hearts of America. Welcome. Hello, Georgine. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, of all the things you might choose to do, why a film about abortion in America that not doesn't just convey mm-hmm. your view on the subject, but you wanted to go deeper and you talk to people on the entire spectrum of the subject of abortion? What motivated you to take this on? Well, it's kind of a strange topic for a first um, foray into film, I would say. But uh, <laughs> we are, you know, in a time when when um, this is a very important topic, and it's always an important topic whenever it's life and death, which um, I believe abortion is. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that, that strikes right at the heart of America when it comes to issues of justice, issue, issues of life and liberty. Uh, and, and we are very, very divided on it. And so uh, my wife, Kirsten, and I have been involved with uh, supporting pregnancy centers in different ways. Uh, but what we've realized uh, most recently, especially in 2019 with the Reproductive Health Act, there was this ra- ramping up on both sides of the aisle when it came to what was going to happen with this issue. And there's so much uh, venom, vitriol, hatred on both sides. Yeah. And a lot of passion, rightly so, again. But the, the hope with, with this documentary was to provide um, true information, not propaganda, about where we are, um, how we got here historically, what laws led up to us being here, how did the rhetoric become what it is, and what exactly happens in an abortion. And also, how do we, um, whether you're a pro-life or pro-choice, have these conversations that will bridge the divide and, as you said before, bring about some sort of of um, humanity, empathy, understanding, uh, it, even if not agreeance, which we understand that's not going to happen, but there needs to be a way we can talk about this and have and be deeply convicted, but also be compassionate, even in our conviction. This is such a highly divisive season that we find ourselves in. I really want to commend you for taking up one of the most controversial issues mm-hmm. of our day and to attempt to do it in a way that doesn't just say that I'm a pro-life man and this is what my convictions are, but you sought to engage in genuine conversation to help us understand one another. For those of us who are pro-life, and I am pro-life, I've been involved in the pro-life movement here in my community for many years, and those who are on the other side of the issue, we so often vilify one another to the point that we've lost any possibility of persuasion because we don't talk to yeah. each other and we we have made villains of of each other. So how did you go about these 30 interviews that span the whole uh, divide on the subject of abortion? Yeah. <clears throat> well, the goal was definitely to, to hear voices from different areas of American life. So we spoke to people that had worked in abortion clinics. We spoke with people who have actually performed abortions. we spoke to post-abortive uh, women and men, uh, spoke to people in academia, uh, people that are in uh, medicine, uh, people that um, are in politics, spent, spent some time on Capitol Hill speaking with uh, different senators, congressmen and women uh, on both sides of the aisle, uh, went to New York, Chicago, uh, New Orleans, uh, D.C., as I mentioned before, to just get the heartbeat uh, of America. And and quite honestly, it was, um, you know, what we have a lot more, I would say, pro-life voices, uh, but we do have some very, very strong pro-choice voices, even speaking with uh, a, a, a senator, a New York State senator, who actually co-sponsored the Reproductive Health Act. Uh, she was willing mm-hmm. to speak with us. And, and in doing this, you know, we're able to hear the why. I think a lot of times, uh, especially with this issue, um, if you look at cable news or uh, you, you hear the rhetoric around it, we don't really get to, to the why people do or think what they think. We just get to, okay, you're in that corner, I'm in that corner. And so part of bridging the gap is understanding the why. And then you can understand how you, as a pro-life community, can address those several different whys that people have uh, and the reasons why why they have uh, decided to terminate the pregnancy. Well, again, this is such a strategic time when people find themselves with more time on their hands than they've had in a very long time to give them an opportunity to sit down and watch a a documentary that covers this issue in a compassionate way and compels us to look on it moving forward as something other than a reason to shake my fist in someone else's face. But how can I be constructive? How can I recognize the humanity, even in my opponent, and move forward? Um, Who are some of the folks, and it's an impressive lineup, 
Who are some of the mm-hmm. folks that you feature in Divided Hearts of America? Well, some of the folks we talk to are, are pretty well-known pro-life voices, people like uh, Alveda King and uh, Dr. Ben Carson, you know, especially talking to somebody like him who, uh, from a medical standpoint, mm-hmm. um, is one of the brightest doctors ever to uh, come from this country, you know, being that he's operated on, on um, babies in utero and kind of hearing his journey and how his opinions have changed from uh, how he used to think about abortion to where he thinks about now. We spoke with uh, Senator Tim Scott, another one um, on Capitol Hill. We spoke to people like Carter Sneed, who is uh, uh, in the ethics department at Notre Dame, uh, and even spoke to, as I mentioned before, um, men who have been affected, but also women who have had multiple abortions, um, but but through that have you know healed and are actually very active uh, in in pro-life advocacy. Uh, you know, I think a large part of this is understanding that four out of 10 women in our church pews are post border. And mm-hmm. so when you think about that and you think about the fact that most people, you know, know someone or have themselves been involved with an abortion, uh, how we speak about these people, um, it, we have to do so in a way that is uh, loving um, and forgiving and not condemning because they many of them already feel condemned even inside yes. of the places where they should be being restored. Yes, so true. We're talking about Divided Hearts of America, which is currently streaming on SalemNow.com. And let me encourage you, this is a great opportunity to think constructively about this subject and how moving forward as we have more freedom of navigation around the country, how we can respond and treat one another in the midst of this controversy. What is the goal of this film? Obviously, you want to inform your viewers, uh, but what do you hope that we, we gain from sitting down and really thinking about abortion and how it's impacted our country and individuals in our communities? Yeah, the, well, I, I want people to, we want people to leave uh, from watching or get up from, from streaming this documentary, uh, thinking about this topic in, in some different way than before, but also being motivated uh, to, to engage and to and have a more of a sense of urgency. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes we are lackadaisical. Sometimes, in a in a battle like this that has drug on for so many years, something that seems like it may be hopeless, that there's there's no end in sight, uh, we get lackadaisical. We throw our hands up and feel like we can't make a difference. But um, I have good friends, uh, one of which I interview in the film, an author named Randy Alcorn, uh, who talks yes. about the fact that we can all do something and. Everything that we do is important. Never feel like you are one person, you are one church, you are one community, and you have no ability to affect change. That's simply not true. And so that's one thing I want people to walk away. I want people to be motivated. I also want people to realize um, the the, the horrors that abortion is. Um, We talk about it in ways sometimes as uh, women's rights, which we all want women to have rights for sure. We want them to be respected and protected, no doubt. Um, it's also always termed in, in, in um, uh, terminology such as, you know, lump of cells, fetus, that sort of things uh, um, to kind of take away or distract from what actually goes on in some of these procedures. And so throughout the film, we talk about exactly what is this? What are the different methods um, of terminating that happen? Uh, we speak with people who have actually performed these procedures. And so, you know, I want people to be informed, as, as we mentioned before, but most importantly, um, there has to be uh, a mode of, of not necessarily agreeing, but I want people who are on the fence uh, to make a decision for life. We want lives to be saved. 
and not just lives in the womb. We're talking about lives outside of the womb. We're talking right. about women and men who are facing these decisions. We want their lives to matter because we know that we all walk around stamped with the image of our creator. That's right. Uh, I appreciate that the documentary gives us the history of the laws uh, that we have seen, both the state and then ultimately the Supreme Court decisions that uh, brought us to this current pass. It's extremely well done. It's tastefully done. There may be segments when the littler ones need to, you know, go do something else. But this is a much needed <laughs> look at abortion in America that has divided the country. Again, it, the documentary is titled Divided Hearts of America. It's streaming live on SalemNow.com. Let me encourage you to make some appointment watching. You decide Saturday night, this is what we're doing, or Monday evening or whatever. Uh, make a point to see this film. It's important to you. It's important to the young people in your household. And I believe it's important for the nation. Uh, ben Watson, thank you so much for the work that you have done. You've invested a great deal into this project. And I think it certainly is, uh, has paid off, and I hope many of our listeners, and if not all of them, will watch Divided Hearts of America, streaming live now at SalemNow.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. I so appreciate the time, and thank you for allowing me to come on and talk about the film. Talk You're absolutely later. welcome. Uh, ben, again, uh, Ben Watson, who has invested a tremendous amount into this film. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and a rather awkward and abrupt end in the segment prior to my interview with Benjamin Watson. I was talking about a new translation of the Bible uh, that the Communist Chinese Party is putting together in order to reflect the priorities of the Communist Party. They chose a story out of uh, the book of John, um, where Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They bring before him a woman caught in adultery, and we know how the story goes. Jesus challenges the one who is without sin to cast the first stone. They peel off and uh, guess with their heads down and walk away while Jesus says to the woman, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Well, this new translation in China uh, reproduces the story more or less word for word up until the point at which Jesus is left alone with the woman whom the Pharisees had dragged before her. Events then take an altogether bizarre and diabolical turn. When the crowd disappeared, this new version reads, Jesus stoned the sinner to death, saying, I too am a sinner, but if the law could only be executed by men without blemish, the law would be dead. Um, well, in this telling, Jesus gets rid of the crowd so that he can have the pleasure of bashing the woman's skull himself, right out of the Communist Chinese uh, Party's new translation of the Bible. Well, needless to say, the alteration is blasphemous and offensive to Christians in China and everywhere. Um, but we do well to understand why the uh, Communist Party has decided to make it. Well, the story of Jesus and the adulteress is clearly impermissible to a party in its original form. Though everything up until Jesus is left alone with the woman can be assimilated. Their final exchange is disqualified, replaced by something not just tolerable, but useful to the CCP, if you will. Such points of divergence between the um, 
a new Bible and its source material tell us a lot about what the Politburo sees as the irreconcilable differences between Western and Chinese civilization, more importantly, the scriptures and the Communist Party. Well, the first problem with the account in the Gospel of John from the uh, People's uh, Republic of China perspective, or at least the Communist Party, lies with the rather lordly license Jesus takes with the Mosaic Code. He rejects the idea that strict adherence to the letter of the law suffices to accomplish the will of God. This skeptical attitude toward the, um, the, the legal requirements was built into Christian theology from the start. Philip Sherrard, uh, the author writes, notes that Christianity is alone among the Abrahamic religions in lacking a divinely ordained political constitution or legislative agenda. Both the Torah and the Quran present a God who commands his people to form themselves into a specific political structure supplied and required by the deity himself. Christianity, on the other hand, transposes the divine drama from a legal key into an existential one. Well, there's a whole lot more that you could read um, about this, which I find absolutely uh, fascinating. The thing that I think is most interesting to me, however, is that the Communist Party in China has come to the point where they recognize we cannot eradicate the influence of scriptures in this country. When you consider the extent to which they have gone uh, to persecute believers, to shut down underground churches, to undermine the possibility that believers can uh, come together for worship. When you consider the tremendous time and, ta and treasure that they have devoted to um, eliminating Christianity, they've now resorted to creating a version of the Bible that they will consider tolerable, that they will consider acceptable because it has been rewritten so that it no longer even resembles anything like the original. So what's fascinating to me about this story, and there's whole, a lot more you can read in the article uh, about this, the thing that's most interesting to me is that it seems that they have resigned themselves to the fact that Christianity is a reality, it's a fact in the People's Republic of China, and the Chinese Communist Party cannot eradicate its influence. So their decision is, in the absence of any um, way to eradicate its influence, any way to get rid of Christian influence altogether, we're simply going to rewrite what the scriptures have to say. Now, I'm sure that they commend themselves for being clever, for changing the Bible so that it is unrecognizable. And for those who are unfamiliar with the original, it may very well seem plausible, but God's word is unstoppable. His Holy Spirit is moving and working in places and in ways that the Chinese Communist Party finds puzzling, frustrating, and maddening. Um, and I'm excited because I know that God's people there are continuing to do the work of evangelism. They're continuing to meet together. The underground church is continuing. Underground Bibles are continuing. Uh, the prayer that uh, that continues to rise from um, our brothers and sisters in China continues. And while the um, Chinese Communist Party might imagine that they have finally come up with a solution to put a muzzle on this Jesus of Nazareth, and his Bible and his followers, oh, how sadly they are mistaken. Uh, anyway, I just thought it was an interesting story. I apologize for the kind of break in trying to <laughs> to talk about it. Um, but uh, again, we'll, we'll probably revisit this at some future point. But did want to make the point that the gospel is unstoppable. God is at work in China, despite what's happening there. He is at work here in Portland and Beaverton and Hillsboro, despite what's happening here. Uh, he's at work in Washington, despite what's happening uh, there, what we like and don't like. 
and there is nothing that can frustrate the plans and purposes of God. So hold on to that. Pray for our nation, pray for our city, pray for one another, share the gospel when opportunities present themselves, and let's be ambassadors of Christ who at the end of all of these uh, troubles we're currently facing can look back and say, hey, we did pretty well. Well done. Want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.